One of the most difficult consequences of living under the cloud of global pandemic is the ubiquitous, fearful uncertainty that hovers over us every day. And in the days of, just like in the days of Israel's captivity in Egypt, death has come to call and is taking from us many beloved associates, friends, and even families. In this kind of atmosphere, many are asking, if there is a God, why is he permitting such wholesale death in the world? But I want to suggest to you that that's the wrong question. Instead of asking why God allows so many people to die, we should be asking what provision has God made for death? You see, the reality is that all of us are mortal. And that means it's not a matter of if we are going to die, but merely only a question of when and how we are going to die. This is the way it is in this world. And while there's no way of knowing for certain when or how we are going to die, we do know with absolute certainty what provision God has made for death. You see, God has actually provided a spiritual vaccine, and he has done it as an antidote for death. And that antidote has been made from the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The question for us this morning is, why should anyone trust in Jesus Christ as their only hope of eternal life, eternal life in the face of death? What evidence is there that his word is reliable, his promise is true? I want to suggest this morning that you can entrust your hope of eternal life to Jesus because God's word is always true. His promises are always fulfilled. How do we know his word is true? We know his word is true because he has a long history of making and keeping his promises. Well, I suspect we could spend a year of Sundays recounting the faithfulness to the promises of God by God himself. But for our purposes this morning, I, I just want to point to two. Two promises that God has fulfilled and one conclusion. First, God has promised that the long-awaited Christ would come not as a royal sovereign, but rather as a suffering servant. This was shocking to the Jews. They expected him to come as a military leader, much like Joseph Maccabeus or any of the others who revolted against Rome. They thought he would come and make things right, and sit on his throne in Jerusalem. But that was not God's plan. Not yet, anyway. And so God's plan was that the Christ who would come would not be a royal sovereign, but rather a suffering servant. Secondly, God promised that while the Savior's suffering would result in death, God would raise him to life, on the third day. And furthermore, I want to argue that since God deliver, delivered on his promises to both send the suffering servant 
and to raise him from the dead, we can trust his promise that he will also one day return to take us home to be with him where we will forever experience eternal life. How's that for a message in a culture struggling with fear of death? On that day and in that place, there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more sickness, no more respirators, no more medications, and best of all, no death. If you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And as you're turning there, let me just say that by the time Matthew records these events, Jesus has already faced the cruel tortures that led up to his crucifixion. Already exhausted from the previous night's sleeplessness, he was led through the proceedings of a kangaroo court where he was falsely accused of capital crimes and condemned to death. From there, he was taken to Pontius Pilate, where he was indeed sentenced to die. The soldiers had beaten him mercilessly by now. They had mocked him. They pulled out his beard. They spat on him. They smashed a crown of thorns upon his head. And through the crowded streets of Jerusalem, then, he was forced to carry his own cross until his strength failed. And finally, they stripped him naked and threw him on the ground and nailed him by the feet and hands to two wooden posts upon which they hoped he would hang between life and death for three days. The abuses and tortures heaped upon him were agony beyond anything that we can fathom. And yet they were nothing compared to the ultimate suffering that he would experience under the, the very personal wrath of Almighty God for sins Jesus had never committed. It was Friday. Sundown would usher in the beginning of the High Sabbath for this week, also marked the annual celebration of the sacred Passover. It was Yom Kippur. In order to dispatch their victims before the Sabbath, which was according to Jewish law, the chief priests had asked the Romans to accelerate their deaths by performing what they called crucifracture, the breaking of both legs below the knees. John tells us it's exactly what they did to the other two thieves who were hanging beside him on their own crosses. But when they came to Jesus, they discovered that he was already dead. And so rather than breaking his legs, they took a sword and they pierced his side into the cavity of his heart, from which flowed blood and water. Before sundown, then, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus asked permission to remove Jesus' body so they could give him a proper burial. They wrapped Jesus in fine linen strips between which they spread nearly or more than a hundred pounds of costly perfume. 
And then having a huge stone rolled in front of the tomb, they sealed it closed without the slightest inkling, listen carefully, without the slightest inkling that they would ever see him again. And this brings us to that part of the narrative upon which I wish to focus for the rest of our time together, Matthew 28, 1 through 10. And why don't we, out of honor, honor of the word of God, let's stand together and read Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. <coughs> now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. And he said, Come and see the place where they lay, where he lay. And then go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the others, the other of his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them, and he said, Greetings! And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The Lord has spoken, and you may be seated. And we're all familiar with the story, and there is enough in this one text alone that we could glory in through a whole series of messages. But this morning, I would like to invest our time considering verse 6. The Sabbath was now over, and a group of women, two of whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the other Mary, we don't know quite who the other Mary was, but they had set out early in the morning to anoint Jesus' body. It was the custom of the day to take the body of one who is particularly honorable in the community and literally encase that body in thick, pasty perfume so as to cover the stench of death. Joseph and Nicodemus had already done a pretty thorough job the night before with their hundred pounds of perfumed ointment, but these women loved Jesus so much that they were determined to add their own perfume to Jesus' body, and at no small expense to themselves. And they walked, as they walked, to the site of the tomb. They discussed among themselves who they might find to roll back the stone away from the tomb so that they might get in and do their duty. Again, they had, listen carefully, they had absolutely no idea. No idea. It had never even crossed their minds that when they got there, Jesus would be gone. 
And so it was to their utter shock and amazement, you can imagine, when they found a mighty angel of the Lord standing or, or sitting on the stone, which was now, by the way, some distance from the opening of the grave. It's as if the angel came and grabbed it and tossed it like a frisbee. And terrified at the sight, these women trembled, and the angel said to them, what angels always say when they appear, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen. And catch these final words. Just as he said. It's as he said. Just as he said. These, beloved, are amazing words. In fact, they are the words that separate Jesus from an innumerable throng of false and misguided and illegitimate religious leaders of the world. Of all the many thousands who have claimed to be worthy of our trust, only he, Jesus, provided ultimate proof that his promises are trustworthy, and that our lives are safe when we entrust them to his care. Whenever I'm asked about why I place my confidence in Jesus over the other religious alternatives available today, one answer that springs to my mind is this. Jesus is the only one in history about whom promises were made and by whom everyone was kept. For example, through his prophets, God promised that he would be a suffering servant. He would not be what the Jews expected. He would not be even what his disciples expected. And if you're taking notes, this is point one. God promised a suffering servant. Well, nobody ever prophesied about the life of Buddha. No prophet ever dared to record specific details about the birth life or death of Mohammed, maybe a little bit about his life. And there are no ancient scriptures predicting any verifiable details about the life and ministry of Dalai Lama. There was no prophecies about them coming. There was no prophecies about what they would do. There was no prophecies about how he would die or what would happen to them after they die. But of Jesus it was written that he would be born in Bethlehem which is amazing because you can't control where you're born. You'd be born of a virgin in the tribe of Judah, the lineage of David. He would have the power to heal the sick and raise the dead. And finally, he would be killed. In fact, he would not only be killed, but his execution would occur according to a very specific and revealed plan. For example, the prophet Isaiah. Get this, five hundred years before Jesus' birth. He wrote of Jesus' death. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, he writes, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
the chastisement for our well-being fell on him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah went so far as to predict that he would die in the presence of wicked men, two thieves to be exact, but that at least, one more thing that he, he included here was that there would be at least one wealthy man who would attend to him upon his death. Isaiah writes, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And we know but this is exactly how it proceeded. Again, describing the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, Matthew writes, quote, And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. And yet, 200 years before Isaiah, that's 900 years before Jesus, King David made clear what would happen when they killed him. He wrote of Christ in the first person, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Do you see, beloved? Do you see, my friends, maybe listening from afar today? Everything happened just as God promised. It all occurred just as he said. Jesus' life and death went exactly according to God's plan so that there would be no excuse for anyone failing to believe his word. For only the true God himself could tell the end from the beginning and do it with such spectacular detail. He promised that his Christ, his Messiah, his Redeemer would come, not as a royal sovereign, as everyone expected, but rather as a suffering servant. Even to this day, perhaps many of you know that in Israel when, and in the American synagogues, when they get to this part of Isaiah, which they esteem greatly, the prophet Isaiah, when they get to this chapter, Isaiah 53, they skip it. It sounds too much like Jesus. But not only did God promise that his Christ would be a suffering Savior, Jesus himself promised that he would be the resurrected Lord. God promised a resurrected, not just Lord, but King. God promised a resurrected King. As you read the Gospel accounts, of the life and ministry of Jesus, it becomes abundantly clear that he knew exactly what lay ahead of him. He knew where he was going. He knew how it was going to play out. And as I said earlier in this service, Jesus declared, no one takes my life from me, 
I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Jesus knew what was going to happen. He was part of the planning. And one day, some of the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus and demanded of him, Matthew 12, Teacher, we want, we want to see a sign from you, as if they hadn't seen enough already. In other words, they wanted to see some kind of magical, miraculous proof that he was Christ, the promised king of Israel, the son of God. But he answered and said to them, I suspect he said this probably with a smile, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, and yet no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For Jonah... For just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. They must have walked away scratching their heads. Now, you don't have to know Greek to understand really what Jesus was talking about here. And this can be demonstrated throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. After that great occasion when Peter made his public confession in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus told the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And you know why? I think we've talked about this before. Jesus didn't want them going around talking about the wrong kind of Messiah. He didn't come to be the royal sovereign, at least not yet. And so he repeatedly said, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone. The implication is you're going to get it wrong. You guys don't understand yet. You don't understand what the scripture has said. And so please don't tell anyone. And from that moment, Matthew writes, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up. On the third day, Jesus is very specific. In fact, so explicit were Jesus' words that Peter rebuked the Lord when he said them. To which Jesus responds, Get thee behind me, Satan, and you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. In the very next chapter, Jesus reveals his glory to Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. But on the way down the mountain, Matthew records, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one. They had just seen him in all his glory. And he said to them, Don't tell anyone. You still don't understand. You don't have all the information. Don't tell anyone. And then he says this, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has been, what? Risen from the dead. Uh, they not only could not understand that Christ would suffer and die, they had no inkling of resurrection. They knew nothing about that. I mean, they believed in resurrection, as we know from Martha's response in John chapter 11, after her brother died and Jesus was preparing to raise him from the dead. 
And by the way, later on, as Jesus and his disciples were gathering together at Galilee, he told them very explicitly these words, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. I mean, he repeated this again and again, but it was so far outside of their paradigm, their worldview, that it just could never make sense to them. And then in chapter 20 of Matthew, we read verses 17 through 19, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and scourged and crucified, and on the third day he will be raised up. Again, on the night Jesus was arrested, Matthew 26, Jesus said to them, this is right after uh, presenting the Lord's table for the first time and sharing that last Passover. He says this, right, right on that evening, you will all fall away because of me this very night. For it is written, now that's an enormously specific phrase. For it is written. There is so much freight in that phrase. Every time you read in the book of Matthew, things like, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, which say, etc. Every time you see that, you see God's plan in action. He promised, and now he is delivering. All you have to do is read the book and you can see his promises, which is why he repeatedly said to the Pharisees, have you not read? And so it is written, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away from you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to them, to him, truly I say to you, Peter, that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Again, very specific. So explicit was Jesus about the promise of his resurrection and so often did he repeat this prophecy that it would happen, that even his enemies knew it and took it seriously. So that after they executed him, they went back, the Jewish leaders did, they went back to Pilate to ask for a guard, a group of soldiers, to guard his tomb, saying in Matthew 27, Sir, this is the Jews speaking to Pilate, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, this deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, these disciples of his may come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And Peter said, uh, Pilate said to them, you have a guard. 
Go and make it secure. Secure as you know how. And they went. And they made the grave secure. How did they secure it? With a band of Roman soldiers who were looking at punishment of death if they abandoned their post. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. And you broke the seal at peril of your life. By the way, that very guard, that group of soldiers that he mentioned, they were the ones whom we read about just a few moments ago, who immediately after the resurrection are found lying on the ground like dead men, shaking with fear. You see, the enemies of the Lord didn't realize it at the time, but when they asked for a guard of Roman soldiers to secure the tomb of Jesus, they were being sovereignly used of God to make absolutely sure that no one could charge that Jesus had exited the grave by any means short of a miracle. How could anyone get in if Roman soldiers were guarding the entrance? And even though they would turn around and spread the rumor that the disciples had stolen Jesus' body, they knew, they knew that they themselves had made that absolutely impossible. The fact is, when the women arrived at the tomb early, tomb early on that first day of the week, which is Sunday, Jesus was not there. He had risen from the dead, just as he said. Oh, beloved, this is such an important truth to allow the Holy Spirit to burn into your hearts. That the word of God is absolutely not merely sufficient, but is absolutely trustworthy in every detail. He who promised to resurrect the Savior has promised to give eternal life to everyone who repents and believes. He has fulfilled a thousand promises. Why will he not fulfill this one? For all who believe. Everyone who repents and believes becomes the recipient of this fulfilled promise, this offer of free grace unto eternal life. Do you know what the church needs on Easter Sunday, 2020? We need the conviction of Abraham, who with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform, Romans 4, 21. And the author of Hebrews wrote, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. By the way, the same Abraham, the same Abraham was the one that God told, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him. And as you read that story and you get to that part where they are on Mount Moriah and he is taking the knife and getting ready to plunge it into his heart, 
If you're involved in the story at all with your emotions, you've got to be thinking, no, no, no. God could not have commanded him to kill his son. And it's true, God sent his angel to stop it at the last second. But when it came time for God himself, he did not spare his own son for you. The resurrection is the centerpiece of everything we believe. No resurrection, no Christianity. No resurrection, no peace with God. No resurrection, no eternal life. The believer's entrance into heaven is secured by no less than the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But let me ask you a question. Before you reach those pearly gates, before you ever stand before the judgment seat of God, what is there to give us confident assurance that it is safe to live a risk-taking, Christ-exalting lifestyle that God calls us to live? Answer, simply this. That God has demonstrated over and over again that all that he promises, he will certainly perform. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate evidence of God's infinite trustworthiness. He promised it. He planned it. He planned every, every little piece of it. And it came about, you can say it with me, just as he said. Do you understand what a rock this must have been under the disciples' feet? How were they able to stand boldly in opposition to the local authorities for the sake of the gospel? How were they able to face the threat of death for the sake of the truth? Upon what confidence did they set out from their homes to the ends of the earth taking nothing along with them to sustain them? Was it not that they had somehow learned to put their absolute confidence in the God who had been unwaveringly faithful? And what about us? Where will we find the courage to live holy lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? From what will we derive confidence to share the gospel of Christ with our family, neighbors, co-workers, and skeptical neighbors or friends? What is it that will convince some, some in this church body, some of you, to give up the traditional American dream for the sake of a higher call to take the good news to the nations and to people who have not yet heard? Will it not be an unshakable confidence that he who called you is faithful? Whatever he has promised, he will perform. He's not only risen, he is risen, say it with me, just as he said. Now before we close, I need to point out one more promise First, there was the promise of the suffering servant. Then there was the promise of the resurrected king. And since those promises were fulfilled in every conceivable detail, we can have absolute confidence in God's promises of a returning Lord. The returning Lord. God promised a returning Lord. You see, 
All of God's past promises fulfilled now serve simply to add immeasurable weight to one awesome promise for the future, namely that Jesus Christ will return. When the disciples stood there watching Jesus ascend into the cloud some 40 days after the resurrection, the angel appeared to them saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Is that a promise worthy of your trust? It is just as trustworthy as every other promise Jesus ever made and every promise he ever fulfilled before he left. His past grace fulfilled is evidence that his promises of future grace will also be fulfilled. As reliable as was his promise of resurrection, so reliable is his promise of return. And on that day, every wrong will be made right. Every sickness will be healed. Every death will be replaced with resurrection. From the Apostle Paul, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, we, deli we deliver to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers all at one time, of whom are still alive, many of whom are still alive, he said, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. But in fact, he continues in chapter 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so you see, beloved, what our world needs more than anything during 2020, the global pandemic, is faith in the promises of our resurrected and returning Redeemer, our Lord. You know, over the past 15 years, several trustworthy men repeatedly warned us about the matter of facing one day soon the ravages of a global pandemic. And you know what? Nobody believed them. Nobody prepared for it. But oh, how we wish we had heeded the warning. Even so, the Lord himself has repeatedly warned us that there is, there is an appointed time for all to die, and after that, the judgment. There is coming a day when we will all stand before God to give an account. Will you be able to say to him on that day, all my hope is in Christ? 
If not, I plead with you to hear and to heed his promise. Jesus bore all our sins in his body on the cross. His shed blood was to pay for all of our sins. He has promised to cancel the debt of all who repent and believe. And if you come to him, he will most gladly receive you and grant to you eternal life by the power that raised him from the dead. My friends, the choice is yours. You've now heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you listening to me? You have now heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not harden your heart. God's provisions for death in Jesus Christ is available to you. Won't you receive it? Won't you claim it? Won't you bow before your Lord and ask him to receive you? and save you, there would be no better time than today. Beloved, God's word is true. He who promised to resurrect the Savior has promised to give us eternal life with him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to you for your promises and grace. We are especially grateful to you for your promise eternal life that we have because of the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. I pray, Father, even now that as people are thinking perhaps about many things that perhaps some would be pierced in their heart and they would discover within them a desire, perhaps an unexpected desire to know this Jesus to find in him everything that God has promised to be for them in him. Lord, would you grant them the grace to repent and believe, I pray, in the name and for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.